Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Jason Vandeboom, the CEO of Active Campaigns. So Active Campaigns is an email marketing, marketing automation, sales automation, and CRM software platform for small to mid-sized businesses. Really, they do it all for small to mid-sized businesses. And what's really cool about Active Campaigns right now is they're growing like crazy. And I heard this amazing statistic confirmed by Jason. Apparently, 95% or so of their new customers find them organically through mechanisms like person-to-person referrals. And I think that's an amazing number that comes from building a really strong customer advocacy group. And it made me think about how you build a community that strong. Jason revealed it's a far simpler task than many make it out to be. A huge amount of it comes from activating your champions. So this got me to thinking about how product managers can activate these champions. As product managers, you know, you're constantly talking to customers, but how are you identifying and working with these advocates? Jason, well, he goes through hundreds of support tickets to find stories and find these champions. So as product managers, how often are you reading support tickets? And what about NPS results, surveys, polls, and of course, the customer calls and visits I know you're doing? How are you playing a hand in activating these champions? Typically, product managers might not be the ones activating their customer base, but when you're in the role of product management and you're talking to customers every day, shouldn't you be involved in this activation? I'm not saying PMs need to coordinate events or come up with marketing campaigns, but they really need to listen to their customers and find the ones who are as crazy about their product as they are. So tell me, how do you activate your customer community in your job? How do you identify these champions? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or reach me at ebodic on Twitter. Welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Jason Vandeboom. Jason, why don't you start this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. I have a engineering background that kind of transformed into an interest in the fine arts and led to creating active campaign where I've really been focused on trying to improve customer experiences for growing businesses. And it's kind of a unique background, right? You, you started as a, a coding guy, coding yeah, yeah. whiz, someone described you as. I don't, I don't know about whiz, but yeah, I, I stumbled around trying to figure out how to write code. Um, around 12 or 13, I just had a passion for like building things, fortunate enough to get a computer back then, and would just find odd projects throughout the country. I started locally and then just started finding things online and would do work initially more web design and whatnot that led into more custom solutions and start building out some intranets and things like that. But yeah, just constantly just trying to learn more and more of, of what can I build and how can I translate that into value. And then in addition to that, you studied fine arts, right? So Yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a weird mixture. So I was doing that for for quite a while, doing that through high school, was working in a local internet service provider, doing consulting and whatnot. But I've always also had a passion for like fine arts, like illustration, typography and whatnot. And they don't always go hand in hand together. 
but that blend essentially at the end of the day kind of equals product, right? So like by going to fine art school, it, it sort of was a forcing function for me to actually start active campaign. I wish I started the company with this like grand vision to like displace parts of the market or, or take on some giant undertaking, but it was really just trying to pay for fine art school. So I was doing consulting and didn't want to keep doing that over and over. So packaged up some of what I was doing, try to sell it as a product, put it online, someone bought it. And then kind of focusing both on the engineering and on the art side of things was able to kind of build that into a, a bigger business over time. Hmm. So what influences your style, your thinking the most, your, you know, technological coding background or your fine arts experience? That's a good question. I think of everything, I guess, as like almost an engineering sort of challenge, if you will, whether that be like how we're going to technically solve something, how we're going to go to market, even how we're going to build out teams and whatnot, because people at the end of the day are probably, you, you won't always find the outcome or solution necessarily to everything, but it's almost like the largest engineering challenge you could possibly have. So I think that drives a lot of it. But with that, to actually get value out of what you're building, what you're engineering, the design matters, that experience matters so much. And what really matters there is not necessarily design that looks nice, but really focusing on that experience of whether that be more on the usability side or just time to value of seeing like what it will do. I think that's been also a learning I've had over time. Hmm. And now any, you know, was there any thought to being a full-time artist before, you know, making your way into the business world? I never actually had a good plan for how that would work out. Um, the very fact that I was, I was having to do consulting and then, and then start a product company to pay for fine art school was kind of leading indicator that maybe like a career in typography would be a little harder. So now I'm more of a fan of it from the outside. And, uh, you know, I get to still have that creativity through most everything what we're doing. So I get that little piece of it, but no, not, not a true, I'm not sure if I'll ever be a true full-time creator of typography. <laughs> got it. Got it. So going back to active campaign or going to active campaign, yeah. you made the decision to bootstrap it. And that's been 13 years now. Talk to me through the thought process early on, why you did that and what you learned. Yeah. So early on, I, I think it was really, I was just forced into that. I, I didn't think of it any differently. I didn't see any other option of actually building the business. I grew up in a home where my parents were running small businesses at different times I just thought like for a business, you build something of value, you sell it, you make some money, you invest that in the business and you keep doing that. And that's just kind of how I started and ran things. And, and that worked out pretty well. And, and we're growing, we're, we're profitable, we were really nice business and whatnot. And I, I just kept kind of doing that over and over and over. Ultimately, about 13 years in, decided that, you know, we're transforming a bunch of things. We're seeing a, a ton of acceleration and we ended up taking funding later on. And I think it was the right time and I had a variety of different reasons for wanting to do that. But the good thing was by bootstrapping for so long and kind of controlling our destiny, it gave us so much optionality for going forward and continues to give us so much optionality where we can really go after what we care about. And for us, it's focusing on how do we provide customer experience automation to small businesses and, and above and, and not just take that normal playbook of, you know, start to see some traction and then move right up market further and further and further, trying to chase additional growth. We think there's different ways of doing things. And by owning that ability to control what you're doing on your own time frame matters a lot. And I think that there's so many different ways a business can find a way to bootstrap to give themselves that optionality. It may take extra time. It may be uncomfortable. Like we had plenty of that. 
but yeah, it's uh, it, it was a fun period of time. So what finally prompted the decision or what prompted a decision to accept funding? Yeah, so we were like about a year or two before we actually ended up doing it. Uh, we were starting to get a lot of inbound interest and whatnot. We were starting to get a lot of product market fit within marketing automation specifically. And we really started seeing it as like it's an optimal timing moment where we could take somewhat decent like Series A, we raised 20 million and not really give up that much, meaning it could be for a small piece of the company. I also, in a weird way, just wanted like some external pressure. Like even if there was like no great control of like saying like, hey, you have to move up market, like they can't necessarily do that. But I wanted some pressure that was besides just myself and the team. And maybe that's not a reason to like raise in general, but I do think it provides a certain different aspect of input and feedback. And and from there, we were fortunate enough to really spend time to find kind of the right partners, people that really were aligned with where we want to go. And now it's been, it's just been a tremendous experience and something that I don't regret at all. So that's good. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned the additional pressure. And I think there is, there's a, a lot of positives to having a little bit of that, right? Not necessarily yeah. driving you to in directions you don't want to go, but, you know, giving you, you know, pressure to deliver the results, you know, that isn't just come from yourself, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and just like, uh, and we do the same thing now with like building out leadership. Like if I focus on only similarities to myself, it's going to be super product heavy. It's going to be super like lasered in on kind of my thought process and whatnot. Whereas if I get some people that are kind of trying to push up market, even though we're going to stay small business first, it allows you to see different opportunities here and there and, and think about what you're doing and possibly craft that a little bit differently. When I think about, you know, like it's, creating that tension almost, if you will, mm -hmm. allows for more innovation. It's like when you're all aligned, it's, uh, it becomes a pretty sad situation pretty quickly. It, it, you can feel good about it for a period of time, but you're not really pushing the bounds of anything then. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier to defend your actions if everyone already agrees with them. Yep. So it, it's interesting. You kind of, I, I, when I talk about kind of the theory of composition of teams, in this case, you're getting kind of that diversity of thought on your team, right? Yep, exactly. And and really striving for that. And even if that creates some like uncomfortable dynamics at times, like embracing that and, and being upfront about it at the beginning, like that's the intention. Like we're looking to not be all like, you know, thinking the same exact thing. Yeah. I mean, I think a little discomfort is good because it, it makes yep. you think through, you know, your assumptions and your, your biases to some extent too, right? Yep, definitely. So, Talk to me too about, you know, thinking about the bootstrapping and as a product person, you know, how has bootstrapping affected product and product management in your company during those days? And how has it changed or has it changed now that you've taken some money? Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing was early on when we hit challenges and whatnot, it was easy to slip into almost more of a consulting mode to get through them. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I think we aired on a couple times, meaning like, you know, sales were a little bit down or something like that. We're trying to get through this period. All of a sudden a customer comes and they want feature X, Y, or Z. And we're like, well, for X dollars, it's yours. And then we start doing it. That was a fundamental flaw in decision-making a couple times. And, and that led us to getting into this mindset of, we can never let that happen again. And we did this still while being bootstrapped, but so much so that we created this like rule internally, like there's no customer that can be more than half a percent of our revenue because we don't want anyone that can tell us what to do where we can't feel like we can just walk away from it and believe in what we believe in as the direction of the platform. And we've actually ran into cases where we could have broken that internal 
rule, but decided not to, thankfully. But I think that was the maybe one of the downsides or negatives that I think can occur at times because you are very reliant on the cash flow coming in. Now, let me clarify that. When you said yeah. decided not to break that rule, does that mean you turned down a customer because they would be too big? Or does that mean- Yeah, that we turned down- yeah, like we had opportunities where it would have been a sizable account where a lot of people would have celebrated and been like, this is great. And we're like, we spent a lot of time and we almost like, we tried to justify it a ton of different ways on why it was okay in this case and uh, ultimately decided like, that's just not something we're willing to do. It would for have impacted pure, our product. For, I was going to say for pure dollar size reasons or because they also demanded product direction changes? Both. And, and the thing is, it wasn't like a crazy far outside of our roadmap. It was a little bit. It'd be moving something from one part of our roadmap a little bit up. So like we still wanted to do it, but from going through some of that in bootstrapping, going through some of that historically and whatnot, I I just truly felt like that's not a wise decision. So we very much enjoy the fact that we just don't have any large customers that dominate a lot of our revenue. Interesting. Uh, But that, that that would be the one downside. But the other, the real benefit of it is, I mean, you have to show continual value quickly and you can't wait a long period of time for something to work out. And I think the thing that can really get to you if you have a lot of funding is maybe you try to tackle a project and you think about in this grand, like large idea where you're trying to reinvent the entire thing. And then maybe that means you're starting to show some iteration of value to your customers, six, 12, 18 months down the road. When bootstrapped, like it probably isn't even an option. Like you can't invest that much time in something easily uh, on many things, at least, without delivering some value so you can make some money and continue to, to keep moving around. So I think that's a good practice to get into. And as you, as you get funding, it's, it's easier to start to uh, slip. And then, and then if you start making those decisions where you're not showing anything to your customers until a long time in the future, one, you might not ever finish it. Two, it might be a total mess. And that's that much harder to course correct. Because even if you know you should, then you feel like you've invested time in it. Teams feel felt like they've invested time in it. It just becomes a more difficult situation. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, I mean, you feel like there's that cost that you've already invested and yeah. walk yeah. away from that sunk cost. Yeah, and then you start almost making product decisions based off of like your own feelings of what you've invested personally yes. in it too yeah, in time. And that's not a good place to be in because that, that's not going to, it's probably not going to work out well. You know, absolutely. And those are the tough decisions, like killing something that both you've invested dollars and personal time in, but also they're, they're often the right decisions, right? If yeah. You, yeah. you know, there's no need to double down on something that's not working. Yeah. And all the more reason to try to like break it out as much as possible into pieces to get something out there so you can try to minimize how long it takes to, to decide to kill a decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, as, as you grew, you, you mostly were targeting and, and closing small and medium-sized businesses, you know, for, for a long time. How did that affect your ability to scale and what uh, constraints did that put on your business? Because obviously, small to medium-sized businesses have their own life expectancy issues. So to yeah, say. yeah. I mean, it, it provides a little bit more uncertainty in the way of there's a reason why a lot of people move up market primarily for retention. To your mm-hmm. point, like, you know, a lot of businesses don't succeed or uh, a lot of business owners have to make decisions that are, you know, this tool set costs X dollars or I could invest here or there. So to prove value there and to retain revenue over time can be challenging. At the same time, though, I, I think it's the market size. If you're able to get a growth engine where 
it's very self-serve and you have a good self-serve onboarding and things like that. It's actually kind of shocks me how quickly people try to move away from that. And I think at times as a business, sometimes people make decisions to make something look nice on paper when in reality, it may be part of the reason for your success. And I'll give you an example. Like, so we have accounts that go all the way down to $9 a month. And you could look at those accounts. You could look at the cost of those accounts and what it takes to support them, all of that. And you could say like, well, maybe we just like remove that plan. And then on paper, everything else looks a little bit better, but you're not taking into account that if you're providing an experience that that base likes, that's essentially marketing that what, that the cost you're taking on is essentially almost a marketing cost there. The key is they have to actually like the experience, just like in freemium or anything else like that. Otherwise, you have anti-advocates. But I think the other thing that can be a challenge at times is if you can't get that self-serve motion and whatnot going, and if you can't influence that enough, and I think it, there's plenty of ways people can do that, your growth rate is then controlled by that population of people buying because you're not able to necessarily go out and do paid acquisition like maybe some of the competitors can if you're, if you're really focusing in on, on true S of SMB. But I, I also think um, it's something that's transforming over time and we're seeing more and more companies lead with that or maintain that or try to get back to the SMB space. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting too. I, I see a lot of people that, you know, start an SMB and they like want to move up to the enterprise. And, and sometimes I think it's just grass is green or they're like, oh, there's all these problems in the SMB market. And then you dig into those problems and it feels like it's more of there's all these problems in how they execute on the SMB market that aren't going to go away at yeah. the enterprise. It's just, they're going to have different problems. Yep, exactly. And then I, um, I'm completely with you on, I think it's also that where you might get like one point of feedback in the enterprise, you might get like a hundred points of feedback in the small business. So it can feel a little overwhelming at times if you're trying to like, if you're trying to feel like all these, like, you know, instead of one person calling your product ugly, you have a hundred people calling it ugly. That's like, it has a different feeling to it. Right. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. The one's a little easier to stomach. Yeah. 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 Even if the one is a higher percentage of your overall customers, but yeah. So speaking of feedback, you, I heard you start and end each day reading notes from ex-clients. Do you still do that? And, and how is it helpful? Yeah, so I, I still do that. It's a, it's a combination of NPS and cancellation data. And the only reason why it's okay at all is because I actually enjoy it. Because otherwise, I would suggest nobody to do anything like that if it's actually a truly terrible experience for someone. Uh, but I just get a ton of value out of like the tone that I read in that. And I'm a big believer that a lot of people push away customer feedback precisely for the reason we were just discussing of it's uncomfortable at times. And I've done that personally at times in the past as well. And every time I sort of gate feedback or push it away or get someone to like generate a report to make it easier on myself, I distance myself from knowing what the platform is actually providing value in the most and the directional tone of where things are heading. So I take it to the extreme the other way and that's working, probably won't work forever, but I'll always try to get some sampling no matter what. And then I think the key there is it's, and the reason why I care about the tone and whatnot the most, I'm not looking to react to any one thing at all, whether that be feedback, whether that be a complaint with the platform, I'm not looking to take exact direction from any of it, but more so to understand directionally a theme of something. And hopefully that theme falls in line with some of the stuff we have planned strategically on the roadmap, and we can solve for some of those pain points or opportunities as part of it. 
But one thing I never want to get into the habit of doing is taking like someone says, you know, add widget X and we add widget X and they're like, you know, now change that and we change it. Because if you're going to drive actual innovation, it's unlikely people actually tell you what that is directly. Yeah, no, completely understand. In, in these days, you know, tech companies in general can get so many different sources of feedback. How, yeah. do, how do you navigate through all the noise and how do you distinguish between what feedback you know, works the best or influences you the best or is the best uh, representation of you know, what you're looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I have like a really amazing answer to that. For personally, like I just consume way more than less to just from just a lot of, I was just trying to get a lot of different samplings of it. We have a bunch of different things we do for like collecting feedback from customers, collecting feedback internally. I think using your customer facing teams uh, as a point of reference for feedback. So you get more of a summarized tone. We set up some of our teams with a little bit of areas of focus, like sometimes automations or integrations or whatnot. So as the product teams are, are thinking about roadmap, thinking about challenges and what they should address, there's groups of people where we can where we can extract some some ideas and thought from, but yeah, I think it's I think more so than any one probable solve for it, it's going to differ based on the business. And I think constantly seeking like how can you learn more instead of settling on like we got this report, let's just you know it'll be static. We'll get it once a month. I think that's probably the the most important thing. So you know, talking about active campaign and how you guys have grown. Heard that 90% of your new clients come organically, you know, through things like word of mouth. How have you built that strong community of advocates for the product? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, we're really focused on customer experience automation. So like our own customer experience is like something we have to like craft well. Organic, we're able to get moving a bit early on. And then we started using advocacy as probably the biggest growth engine and not advocacy in the way where you have to like go and, and like give people like buckets of cash to give you traffic or something like that. But genuine, like identifying um, people that are passionate about the platform and just literally like our advocacy program was pretty simple. I just talked to those people occasionally and we're able to see, and we're able to attribute like these circles of like growth around them within their network and within their actual locales. And it was part of a reason why we were able to grow internationally so well early on was using like authentic advocates as part of that. And then it's also just knowing that things like that, things like small events in different locations, things that maybe take longer to attribute or take longer to see success, just assuming that some of those things, if you're actually catering to a good customer experience, will help over time. And that takes time though. So that might not always fall within everyone's playbook if they're trying to see like rapid growth right off the bat. But yeah, I think that's, what, that's what's worked for us. So if you were, you know, if product manager came to you and says, hey, I'm starting to build up community with this company that, you know, I got involved in. And part of that is, is building an advocacy program. What advice would you give him as kind of like, here's the three things you should think about in building community and building out advocacy? One to not, not think about it as like a tool, like the tool is going to solve it. Like there's, there's probably like really good, I know there's amazing advocacy software out there and whatnot, but that's not going to actually create a community, at least not one that's authentic. I think trying to also position it early on where it's not pay for play in terms of advocacy, because that's also not advocacy. That's just a referral or affiliate program. And to just like, it doesn't take a lot. Like even now, like I'll identify a handful of, of potential 
advocates, if you will, or evangelists, if you will, like every quarter or so and just reach out and create a dialogue and try to get that around a team that's around you as well to do something similar. And, and it seems simple, but like it's much easier from the leadership side of things to be able to get advocates to start to surface a little bit. And it doesn't take a lot and treat that as like a pipeline. And, and it's, that will help guide you as to like, what is actually like, where are your advocates? What's kind of the profile of them? And you can start to build up more programming, maybe build out a team around it. But I think all too often we start from the other side. We try to find like the perfect tool that's going to solve for it. And then we're going to find the perfect person to build it out and whatnot. When in reality, if you have any customers already, you have some potential advocates or some already advocates that exist out there. You just have to talk to them. How do you find them? How do you pick them? What characteristics do you look for? Yeah, I think some of them raise their hand. I mean, some of them you can you can tell like if you just go into like your support tickets and whatnot. And that's another thing that I think as you grow a business, a lot of people just jump right out of that. Like uh, occasionally, like I scan through support tickets just for fun because it's like if you want to really understand how your business is doing and understand how your customer experience is doing, just go read some tickets. And if you read a couple hundred of them, you'll get you'll get some idea of something going on. And, and sometimes you'll get something out of there. And, and there's so many other, like, you know, possibly from social, you can create like Facebook groups, Slack communities. If you have a platform that's providing value, there's surely someone out there. And, and typically those are going to be kind of in that early adopter. And they're, they're not going to be necessarily shy about suggesting things and, and having some visible like passion for your business. You just have to actually read some of the stuff that they're probably already posting and sharing. Thanks. So one of the things, I mean, Active Campaign's been around for a little while. So you were around kind of pre-SaaS, right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And, and we chose to stick with on-premise for quite a while. Um, yeah. So talk to me about the transition to SaaS and what prompted the decision to move there. Yeah. So it kind of all goes back to the beginning of I started the company with a single product, more contact management, campaign management. And as we had more customers, instead of buying tools, we always built them thinking, you know, it all has something to do with customer lifecycle. So we ended up with eight different products spanning the entire customer lifecycle. All each had automation within them. But we really found, despite focusing on small businesses, they cared more about the automation. They cared more about a unified experience versus the actual tool set functionality we were building. So that led us to, okay, let's, let's, if we're going to focus on automation, we're going to focus on that as a core product. Are we going to do that as on-prem, which would have been a whole undertaking, so we're going to have to build a bunch of new stuff, or are we going to switch over to SaaS at that time? And it took us a while to make this decision because it was a good business. Like, it was, we we're going to say no to all of this on-premise revenue, and it was anywhere from $500 to $50,000 a license, so it wasn't like we were walking away from nothing. But we decided, you know, we really believed in that, believed in the idea of, like, getting to reoccurring revenue started making that transition around 2013, took us all the way to 2016 to really be fully kind of moved over and starting to see some, some real uh, traction, some real growth within the business from there. And, and from there, it sort of took off. And so for perspective, we were like, we're eight people in 2013. So for the first decade, we went from one to eight people, one to eight products, all engineering product focused, uh, solid business though. And then during that transition, we scaled from eight to 20. And then we've then since gone from 20 to about 550 or so today in the last couple of years. So it's been these different phases of, of growth as a company. But I'd say those learnings from that initial decade of really focusing on small businesses to the degree we were, like literally talking to all of them for the most part and focusing on that entire customer lifecycle really helped inform the problems we're, we're solving today. 
And that had to be a challenge too, from the standpoint of like one of your, your product principles sounded like, you know, small chunks, not huge investments in platform or direction and stuff that is kind of hidden from the customers. I mean, it's not new features, it's new underlying delivery architecture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as part of that, I mean, it was taking eight products and sunsetting them, right? Like that was, uh, that was also talking about like investing years in something and being like, we're done. We also did that in a rather strange way though, too, in the way of we supported those on-premise customers for a really long time. Even if we get tickets now, we'll answer them. And there's a couple people here that know what that means and how to answer them because we just felt like early customers, we have to help them and we have to assist them in the right way. Interesting. So how did, you know, the product management at Active Campaign change during that period? Because it's it's very different, or I think it's different in a lot of ways from a process standpoint, at least moving from, you know, an on-prem licensed product yeah. to a SaaS reoccurring revenue product. Yeah, even from the very stance of, I mean, we were doing releases at set periods of times with packages that were getting out to be downloaded to all of a sudden, like we're, we're basically, you know, continuous. I'd say it, it, from a product and like thinking about strategy and actually developing something, it actually got easier in a way, just because we had to think about far less variables outside of our control because we controlled the entire environment. So we're able to do a lot more that we've always wanted to do, which was refreshing. Product stayed pretty lean for quite a while. I was, I was product for quite a while during that period of time, probably too long, but also I enjoyed it. It, it mm-hmm. was, I felt like it was important to stay close to it. So, so yeah, it's since obviously changed quite a bit with adding more people and scaling out and whatnot and trying to keep that, that lean mindset of where a team or a product team can kind of own a chunk and really kind of push that further. And now we're, we're talking growth now from 20 people in 2017, was it? 2016. 2016 to yeah. 500 plus now. So yep. huge yeah. amounts of growth in a short period of time. Had to put stress on the company as a whole. Yeah. But especially on the product org. You know, talk to me about the challenges of just scaling that quickly. Yeah, I think uh, I, all over the place. For starters, it was the simple things. Early on, everyone knew everything. Everyone was developing on everything. We had to really start to break off into more productized teams. And then we've probably tried three or four different ways of doing that so far. And, and it's all to try to get to a point of where you can almost create like a little startup within the company, right? Where that, that, that team can start and start to finish, complete what they're looking to do while minimizing or ideally removing as many dependencies as cross teams as possible. And that's been my big thing that I've been trying to strive to figure out, like, how do we solve for that? And then as org, how do we solve for that in product and also beyond that? Because that's what causes those slowdowns. That's like, you know, as you have a bigger team, as you have more customers, everything will slow down to a halt because of internal dependencies. And then all of a sudden, the weight of every decision you make feels so much bigger. Because if you do something wrong, all of a sudden, you're not talking about like one customer leaving or something like that. You're talking about potentially a big impact. So I think really focusing in on how do you maintain the advantages of being a small company at scale is probably the hardest thing. And and we definitely don't have it fully solved or cracked quite yet, but I'd like to think we're, we're doing okay at it. Cool. Now today, what, what drives your roadmap? I mean, it's a mix of competitors, customers, investors, executive board. Um, yeah, no, good question. I would say like, it's always tempting to look at the competition, right? It's always tempting to like, it's uh, surely they should know something you don't or something like that. We've fallen into that trap a couple times. So we're really trying to not do that. 
if anything, we look at what others are doing and we're trying to find like the opposite or like the anti of whatever some of the directions are, both from a differentiation standpoint, and also just to kind of test out like, is that even right? I'd say customers have, a, have an aspect of that, but more of that tone, more of that overall theme we're hearing versus like specific one-off requests. And then also, you know, there's a big push here to always be pursuing something that nobody is asking for. That's something I'm really passionate about. And it sounds kind of like ridiculous at times, but this is how I open every new hiring onboarding for every hiring cohort that starts. And I spend some time with the team. It's like, if we only solve for the known, if we only solve for the things that our customers are bringing up or the competition is doing, we'll be a good, like, the same as everyone else, right? If we're actually trying to drive innovation, trying to displace some of the norms within the market, like the ideas we're working on have to be kind of like, kind of not make sense to a lot of people that hear about it. So when we start something and, and we hear feedback like, why would we do that or something like that? It, it's maybe valid in the way maybe we shouldn't do it, but it also is it, we're looking for things like that to pursue because we're trying to drive innovation within the market. We're not just trying to just focus on the obvious. We'll have a component of some of those obvious things, of course, to be working on, but you have to be continually making big bets because I think that's also something that a lot of early companies, as you start, you're doing that. You're trying to find differentiators. You're trying to find a reason why would someone use you instead of a competitor. And then over time, you fall into this like, get more people, you get more people thinking about the same problem. You get more people thinking about the potential impact and and, and results it may have and how that could be potentially harmful. And then all of a sudden you end up with the most conservative decisions possible, leading you to have this like once high growing, high innovative company turn into something that is less so. Hmm. So big piece of advice or single piece of advice, if you had to pick one you'd give to first time founders, what would it be? I wish I would have just trusted my own sort of instincts and guesses a little bit more going back to like thinking that others surely know better like in following competition and whatnot it's just something i I don't think any anyone gives themselves enough credit for kind of that that instinct or coming up with some ideas and being able to commit to that and feel good about trying those out whether they work or fail and if you had to give them say one thing to avoid one mistake you've made what would it be it would be, well, it's, it's somewhat similar in a way, but it's just kind of overthinking and overanalyzing something. And a, a good idea is like, or a good example is when we moved from on-premise to software as a service, we spent so long spending time on that. And like years in, basically, we ended up with a pricing page that had like SaaS, like really opaque off to the side as like an option. And that was like our big bet. And it's one of those things like as with scale, you start to slow down decisions. You start to think about the complexities of those more and more. And sometimes that makes sense. A lot of the times it probably won't make a material difference and you should just kind of keep moving. So if you can try to keep that in the culture, because it goes against a lot of the norms, but if you can try to keep that top of mind and think of that as like a positive thing inside of a company, that's quite helpful. Awesome. So now let's let's find out a little bit more about Jason. So what's your favorite product? That's a good question. I, uh, it's, it's interesting because I don't use a whole lot of products day to day since I spend most of the time talking and whatnot. I loved Inbox for a period of time when it was out and then they killed that. Some of the, some of the like supplement other things, not to call out Pendo here directly, but like that assisting of a customer experience within something where it's not having to go completely outside of a product. I think that's a direction. There's a bunch of interesting companies doing things within customer success and some other areas 
where it's really taking a existing experience and kind of building on top of it. I'm fascinated by that idea. Hmm. So one, one final question, uh, three words to describe yourself. I'd say resilient, maybe I've been at this for a long time and I still am, I'm happy. <laughs> um, I, I'd say fair and, and probably a semi perfectionist. Like I love iteration, but like I'm never happy, which causes more iteration. Awesome. Well, thank you. This is great. Yeah, no, appreciate having me. Enjoyed it. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.